right, so this morning we do look to uh, Romans 16, and I would like to try to cover the entire section. Uh, we'll see how far we actually get. I believe that we can do it. Uh, but we come to Romans' conclusion. We come to Romans' conclusion. So we'll begin with uh, Romans chapter 16, verse 1. And much of it does uh, kind of descend into this rapid uh, greetings uh, that end and culminate in a praise from Paul uh, to the Lord about the saints there. So we'll uh, we'll see how far we can get in that. So I've entitled this sermon, The Greetings from Paul the Apostle. The Greetings from Paul the Apostle. And in this final chapter of Romans, what you see is the compassion and love that Paul has for the saints. And that spills over from what we said last time we were gathered together in Romans 15. That there's this love, there's this expectation of compassion toward one another that you see working itself out as Paul begins to, in a sense, shout out uh, those whom he deems responsible uh, for caring for him in the midst of his ministry and also those for whom he cared for. But you also see that this love and compassion these saints have is certainly for Paul. And Paul encourages them to do so toward one another. He encourages them in the faith to also, in the big picture of Romans 16, to encourage uh, one another in the faith with the same way in which they've encouraged him. Uh, so you see the simple outworking of Christian and Christ-like love that flows from all the sound teaching and all the sound doctrine that we have learned from Romans. And so never let anyone tell you that sound doctrine does not produce or should not produce a love and compassion toward one another, because that is always and always should be the result. And you see it here. It flows what you see in this love that Paul has. It's not laying aside the teaching and everything that we've learned so far, but it flows from the sound theology. It flows from everything that we have covered from Romans 1 all the way through 15 throughout the letter. And so what Paul had reminded them to do, they had not only functioned in it for some time, but they had flourished in it because they remained true to Christ and, and to all the teaching. And so you see that their obedience to Christ was now evident before the world, before them, and now it is etched in Scripture for all time. Here we see biblical teaching, sound doctrine, and it truly produces a love that we have for one another. You see the result. You see why we strive for it. You see why we literally strip everything aside that would distract that because that is the essence of Christian love, of Christian fellowship, and of Christian growth. It is sound teaching. And it is this that you see in Romans 16. It is a love for the believers and our practical desire to serve one another that shows us that we have truly believed. And so you see this in Romans 16. Paul is giving evidence what happens when you believe what is said from Romans 1 to 15, as we have chapter divisions, but this, is, this would have been one letter written to the saints. But you see what then takes place in the lives of believers when they truly believe what Christ has taught and what Christ has accomplished. You see that they therefore have a love for one another. And I would say that in this age, this is certainly not so. This is certainly not the age in which we find ourselves as a gathered church. Because what is taking place before you is men are simply acquainted with theological quotables. But there is no love and compassion toward one another around them. They don't have any love or compassion. Sure, they may be able to read Romans. 
They may be able uh, to even explain theologically, academically what Romans says. But what they do then is they lack in their love and compassion toward one another and those around them. And they give a rabbinical catalog of all the things that they believe they're supposed to believe. But they cannot for the life of them remember who has served them well in the faith according to truth. Nor can they remember who they served. So they can't catalog at the end of Romans, which is why nobody ever preaches Romans 16, because it's all theory. It's all academic. And no one can come to the end of their theology or working out their theology. I believe many can't in the age in which we are except the true Christians and truly begin to thank with gratitude and to have compassion toward those whom they have served well and toward those who have served them well. They are too busy, too busy making money at the expense of the people and using the people as pseudo corporate and religious commodities. But this is not so in our text. It is not so with Paul and it's not so with the early Christians. More than Paul being pleased with them, the divine author, the Holy Spirit, was certainly pleased. He was pleased with the church in Rome. He was pleased with Paul the Apostle. Because they pointed to Christ. That's his work. His work is to point the people to Christ. It is why their names are etched in the biblical record, the scripture for all time. It's why these names appear as they do. It's because the Holy Spirit, the divine author, is pleased. Each of these are names, some familiar to us, some unknown. None of them unknown from the standpoint of God's eternal kingdom. For we will all know one another and serve Christ together on that great day when we join them in eternity. So we will know who they are. They will know who we are. And more importantly, we will know who God is face to face. But here you see first commendation. You see commendation. Paul commends. Paul commends. He doesn't commend himself. You would think at the end of this, this uh I mean, this 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 blessed epistle, you would think that Paul would begin to commend him. So he doesn't begin that way. In fact, he commends Phoebe. He commends Phoebe and he commends Phoebe to the church in Rome. And she was one who helped many and would need the help of others. So Paul remembered her among the saints. I commend you to uh, I, I commend to you, our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church, which is in Centria. That you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and that you help her in whatever matter she may have need of you. For she herself has also been a helper of many and of myself as well. So she is remembered by Paul and remembered and, and Paul wants her to be remembered by the saints. But she also assisted Paul in some way. We do not know exactly how. But it was certainly meaningful enough for Paul to ensure she always enjoyed perpetual help among the saints in Rome and in other regions. Now, she was a deaconess in some way at the church in, Chen in, uh, in Centria, not far from the city of Corinth, which is where we're headed next by way of the New Testament. And then in verse three, he says, greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. Who for my life risked their own necks 
to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. We know and remember Priscilla and Aquila. They were the husband and wife tandem who were tent makers uh, with Paul, who explained the teachings of Christ in a more excellent way to Apollos. We remember them. They are also known for their ministry specifically to Paul the Apostle. And he says as much here, that there is an intimate ministry that this husband and wife tandem had in the life of Paul the Apostle and also among the saints, among the Gentiles. And they were with him in the work as his co-laborers in Christ. Paul calls them his fellow workers. But listen, they were also in the trenches. Paul said that they risked their own necks. They risked their own necks. They put their lives on the line for Paul the Apostle because Paul represented their Lord God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Their loyalty was Paul. Their loyalty to Paul, I'm sorry, was based on Paul's loyalty to Christ. That was the foundation of their loyalty to him. It was why they were really uh, willing to risk their lives uh, for him and for his ministry, because his ministry was in direct line with Christ. They were instrumental in serving the Gentile churches as an invaluable aid to Paul. We see that kind of as their name shows up uh, here and in other places. He commended them in the faith for their faithfulness to Christ at the expense of the great risk that they took for their own lives. So here they are risking their lives so that the furtherance of the ministry of Christ through the Apostle Paul could continue to the Gentile world. You and I, we owe a great debt of gratitude to them as well, especially in this season of thanksgiving and gratitude. We thank Christ for them. We thank Christ for them. They also served faithfully a church that met in their home. Look at verse five. Also greet the church that is in their house. Greet the church that is in their house. So they also served faithfully a church that met in their home. Paul was grateful for the fellowship that the church enjoyed. Listen to this. He didn't feel sorry for the little old house church. He did not frown upon it as the modern evangelical businessman frowns upon the simple fellowship we enjoy in hostile times. He did not frown upon it in that way. He believed that their small fellowship was in Christ because it bore evidence that it was in Christ. Paul didn't simply see the gathering of people as defined as Christian fellowship, but rather Paul saw if you were obedient and we'll see this throughout the text especially to its very end. If you were obedient to the teachings of Christ and exercising compassion and love toward one another that was in step with the teaching, then you were in him and enjoying the benefits of one day being commended to his kingdom, eternally speaking, but being in his kingdom from the vantage point of salvation in him. And so Paul, uh, Paul put that in here by way of the divine author to demonstrate the love that he had for the church that they served as well, and the love that they had for the church that they served. Verse 5 also, he says, Greet Epinatus, my beloved, who is the first convert to Christ from Asia. He greeted him as the first convert. And what a blessing this is. Think about that. What a blessing this is. This brother was among the first to be converted. 
and the first to be named Christian in Asia Minor. He's the first. And then you look at verse six. He says, greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. There was this Mary whom he shouts out, whose work ethic in Christ was well known by Paul and the saints in Rome. She was known for her work ethic and not just work ethic in a vacuum, but her labors corresponded to the labors that honored Christ. They honored the church and they honored God. I'm not talking about religious activity, but I'm talking about whatever it was she did. It was an ethic that needed to be recognized. And she worked hard to serve the people and to serve Christ. And so Paul mentions her name. Greet Adronicus and Junius, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners who are outstanding among the apostles who also were in Christ before me. Now, this is a profound statement. You see here that there is great strength in Christ among the saints and the churches in Rome. There is this strength. There is this persistence, this obedience. These were not saints who served themselves. They were not isolated saints who served themselves and yet only gave the appearance that they served Christ. No, they served one another and ultimately they served Christ. Verse 7, as I said, Paul greets Adronicus and Junius, who were perhaps Jewish believers. And I say that because he labels them as kinsmen, his kinsmen. And whenever Paul uses that moniker of being a kinsman, he's saying that there's a relationship to his natural lineage, so to speak. But also in the spiritual sense, they are Uh, They are certainly brothers in in the faith with him. But they also served prison time with Paul. They served prison time with Paul. They went to prison with him for the cause of Christ and the establishment of the church. You are hearing names of individuals who were instrumental in the foundation of the gospel in the Gentile church. It's amazing we don't hear their names today. It's amazing how their names have been replaced with men who are cowards and weasels and have nothing to do with the Lord's church. And you hear their name all the time. But these are the names that you ought to acquaint yourself with. These are the people upon whom the Gentile church, the Holy Spirit sought to establish throughout the known world. So when they say, what about so-and-so? What about this modern evangelical who has no time to speak to you or deal with you? Well, then we would say, well, do you remember Adronicus or Junius or Mary or Phoebe? You start to rail off names of individuals whom the spirit has commended. We don't have to guess, but the spirit has commended them. But these were Jewish believers. He labels them as kinsmen. They served prison time with Paul for the cause of Christ in the establishment of the church and the truth of the gospel of of Jesus Christ. I believe as we pause here, there's quite a scandal that's going on because nobody talks about Romans 16. Nobody mentions these names of these people. You hear names of people who've shown up in the last 20, 30 years, but you don't hear the names of those who served Christ and were the bedrock that he used, not building upon a foundation that had not already been established because Paul says the foundation is Christ. But these are people who have already labored, who are already in eternity for an already church that is established. 
Nobody's coming along and establishing a new church in the annals of Christianity. We are simply building on what was and what has always been from the vantage point of the start of the New Testament. But we move on from it. They were instrumental in the truth of the gospel for Jesus Christ. They suffered with Paul. They labored with Paul. And look at this. What Paul says is he says that they were in Christ before me. They were in Christ before me. This is a picture of humility at its finest. The modern evangelical is God's gift to man and therefore was converted from birth, we are told. So you can't trace anyone before him because he is the star of his own show. His image is so polished to have you think without him, you cannot go on in your life. You might as well write some love songs. But not Paul the Apostle. He remembered, he remembered this. This is the power of true Christianity and of your ministry. And I'm talking to all of us because we all have a ministry in some regard. He remembered that he had not always been in Christ. This is why his letters are filled with such humility and tenderness and affection and compassion. I believe this mentality, this acquaintance with the reality of our sinfulness before Christ is what keeps us both humble and compassionate toward those whom God saved before us related to our time on this earth. So Paul says that. I mean, if you say that today in the modern evangelical business world, your fraternity's over. If you act like you weren't the first to show up and the first converted, it's over. Because who is who can be more spiritual than you, but not Paul the Apostle? Paul says these saints they were with the apostles before me. They were saved before me. So I'm thankful for them. We see that here in the churches that we have fellowship with. Not all of us were believers at the same time. There are some of you, even at the extension of the sound of my voice, and even in here, you may have been saved before I've been saved. Praise God for you. Praise God for you. You're not in the way. Praise God for you. Praise God that he saved you. And perhaps he may have used you to be instrumental in the salvation of some who are standing up preaching this morning. Praise God. But you see the hijacking of the testimony because everybody's saved at five years old in modern evangelicalism. Because no, every, it's a competition. Nobody wants to be seen as less spiritual than the next man. So the ages get lower. But what I'm saying here is Paul is saying, listen, you all are saints. You all are a blessing to me. You all have shown compassion to me. And I'm certain that I have been compassionate toward you and have reminded you of things you knew before I showed up. But I'm thankful for your salvation. I'm thankful for your salvation because in the case of these two brothers, it happened before me. He remembered he had not always been in Christ. Paul could have glossed over that fact that they had been saved by grace through faith in Christ before him. But he is instead grateful it is the case because they indeed strengthened him. The believers strengthened him. And those saints who came before him strengthened him even more. 
Well, they were known among the apostles and labored with the apostles. He doesn't say before the apostles in the sense that they did their ministry person to person. And that would be the only exclusive meaning. What he said is they were among the apostles. They were among the apostles. They were known among the apostles and labored with the apostles. He doesn't label them as apostles necessarily. He doesn't do that. But he does remember them as those who were with the apostles. And listen to this. Were outstanding among the apostles. So they had a reputation in and for Christ among the apostles that Paul wanted to be commended. We move on to verse 8. It says, Greet Amplatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. And Stachys, my beloved. He commended the saints here as beloved of the Lord. So these are all saints. These are all believers. These are all people who love Christ. They're not the only ones who love Christ because they have fellowship with saints who love Christ. But Paul is showing that there is a certain emphasis that he's placing on their lives and ministry. And I believe that it goes in line with what we'll talk about in Corinthians, that they are those who had the gifts that would be in the known world deemed lesser. And so Paul saw the need to call their names forward on record, eternal record, so to speak, so that they were recognized for what they had accomplished and it would have otherwise gone unnoticed. There were many helping hands in the life of Paul the Apostle and many helping hands in the life of the church. That is true of every single believer. That is true of the believer who has the gift of teaching, the believer who has the gift of administration and helps, that there, there are many helping hands in the life of the believer. And we see this with Paul, and it is so in the life of the church. It is why the head of the church is not any person except the God-man, Jesus Christ. Because we're all simply helping to bring honor and glory to his name, helping one another accomplish this in one another. So it's fitting that Paul, what he would teach in 1 Corinthians regarding the commending those who bore gifts deemed lesser by those who were in the flesh. Because those who were in the flesh in 1 Corinthians, they were doing this. We'll talk about this. He commends not only these people who could speak. He's not simply saying you're a renowned orator or speaker or those with the most exposure. He humbly commends those openly and within scripture who served in capacities perhaps unrecognized to the naked eye. He says, if you want to honor people, honor these people, honor them. Don't do as the Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes and the Judaizers of future uh, from that standpoint would do where they erect for themselves honor and places of honor. But he says, honor these people, honor these people. Don't dismiss them, honor them. And I can tell you the evidence that people believe Romans is that they can do what I just said. That's the evidence. That's the evidence that they truly believe it. I believe in justification. I believe in sanctification. Okay, here's how you prove that that's the case. You begin to honor the saints when they believe those things too. 
You honor the saints. Wherever they may be found, you honor them. Verses 10 and 11. Greet Apelles, the approved in Christ. Greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my kinsman. Greet those of the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. When I was studying this and I was looking at these households, I was just imagining God's salvation as it extends to each of the people that Paul mentioned. He's not only saying greet the individuals, he's saying greet the households because the households are now believers. And we could categorically, I believe, assume that some of these households could be expressions of a church that either is functioning or will later function as such. But he's saying to greet them, greet the households. He thanked those who were in the particular households of Aristobulus, Narcissus, as those who are in the Lord. So much is said in these verses about workers in the Lord. But I would say these saints were not idle. These were not idle saints. They were not lazy. They were laborers in the faith. They were not busy with man's busyness disguised as religious devotion. Because that's what's happening to so many today. They're busy with man's busyness disguised as religious devotion. And you've heard them. When they pull you to the side and you ask them how's their week going or how are they doing, they begin to rail off all the reasons they're tired pretending that their devotion is religious devotion. Tired of going to this thing. Tired of going to this function. Here, Paul is not commending that. He's commending actual day-to-day labor in Christ. It's not that these people were so separated from the world around them that they were simply floating on clouds. That's not what Paul is saying. Throughout the course of their daily lives, they were in the practice, whatever their sphere was, of serving the Lord's church and serving his people. Whatever that was, that's what they were doing. Here, these saints are laborers for Christ, not themselves. They're laborers, they're laborers for Christ, not themselves. Look at verse 12. Greet Trophana and Trophosa, workers in the Lord. Greet Persis, the beloved. Look at what he says about Persis and all of them who has worked hard in the Lord. They've worked hard in the Lord. Well, what have they done? I don't know exactly what they've done, but what they did was hard work for the Lord. And sometimes you and I will not be commended publicly for that. Sometimes people will try to make, uh, try to cause dishonor and deception when we're working hard and laboring for the Lord. And sometimes someone like a Paul will come along and see that you are laboring well and you're laboring hard for the Lord. But I'll tell you something, God sees, God sees it. The Holy Spirit sees it. I mean, these are names that are in scripture. And it's just a list and catalog. People talk about Hebrews, uh, Hebrews 11 all the time. But if you look, this this goes right with it. These are people who have demonstrated the same type of faith that you would see in the prophets, the well-known names of the prophets that you would see in the New Testament saints. Because they are New Testament saints, but they've worked hard in the Lord. Look at what he says about Rufus, a choice man in the Lord. 
also his mother and mine. Paul expresses this love for Rufus and his mother. This is a tender thing. This is a tender thing. It's something compassionate among the saints. Paul knew these people. Paul didn't just gather people around him or make himself above the people or have a crowd around about him. Paul knew the people. He walked among the people. This is why when we say imitate or when the scriptures say, uh, as Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And this we certainly most certainly can because our Lord was the same way. He was among the people. He didn't have 14 layers of security. He didn't have all these things. He didn't have 10 secretaries between him and the people. Paul was among the people. You see it here. This wasn't a business for Paul. He says, I have love for Rufus. And I also have love for his mother. Paul saw himself in relation in relationship with and relation to the brothers and sisters in this point. Their believing family, their believing family was also his family. There was no rivalry here. I mean, this is when Jesus is answering his disciples and he's telling them that they will gain mothers, brothers, fathers, lands with persecutions after they've lost family because of persecution. You and I could think of all the people we've we've lost because of persecution. But now we ought to think, what have we gained with persecutions? Well, that's Paul here. Think of all the people who hated and despised Paul. But then you think of the love that he has for this brother's mother. He says, this is my mother, too. And he greets her as such. Their believing family was his. There were no buzzwords about being relational and then simultaneously striking against relationship. Because that's what people like to do. They like to say, let's be relational, and then they do everything to destroy a relationship. He says, this is his mother, and it's my mother. And however you feel about your mother, it's your mother, and you're probably going to do things to accommodate the fact that it's your mother. But especially in that day, in that society, that was a tender thing. He says, this is my mother. It's, it's his mother by blood, but spiritually speaking, it's, it's my mother also. And I want to care for her, and I want you all to care for him. And if it's my mother, you'll care for her as you would care for me. Look at verse 14. Greet Asyncretus, Plagian, Hermes. Patrobas, Hermas, and the brethren with them. Verse 15. Greet Philologus and Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. He greets this collection of saints in the church. And listen to this. Everyone he may have left out among their number. He wanted no rivalry. He didn't want anyone to believe that they had been left out. I can't rattle off all the names, it seems he's saying, but I could definitely ask that you remember all who are with them. Remember them. Here you see Paul's love for the people. 
You see Paul's love for the people. He's not operating some inner circle of fraternal elite who serve his beck and call. He has love for the people. He loved the so-called common Christian. The so-called common Christian. Because he understood if you are in Christ, no matter your labors for Christ, seen or unseen, there is nothing common about you. You are holy. You are a royal priesthood. You are a joint heir with Christ. That is where I say the evidence is here in Romans 16 as to whether you believe 1 through 15. Whether you believe all the doctrine that's stated. And a lot of people would say, yeah, let's let's have a debate on justification. Let's do this. Let's do that. But when it comes down to it, if you believe all those things theologically, here is how you sound verbally. And that is the case with Paul. And I believe that that is the evidence. I believe that that is how you can test. Do people really believe when you see someone acting like the world, when you see someone acting in viciousness toward people and mercilessness toward people, don't make apology for them. They don't believe this. They don't believe Romans. They don't believe anything that's taught. I don't care if they teach it. They don't believe it. And I guard myself from people who pretend they believe this stuff. Sure, people will recommend books to you. Hey, read this on this. Read this book on sanctification. Read this book on soteriology. And then you watch how they deal with people who are saying they believe in Christ. They don't sound like this. So you don't believe it. You don't believe it. Go sell cars or something. But don't pretend that you believe this stuff. Go be in business. But don't pretend that this stuff has affected you and causing you the new birth, because the new birth, when you see the Christians, you truly believe that they are in Christ and you want them to benefit from all that Christ has given. them. You believe it. And you speak to them as though it's true. You speak to them as though not only do they bear God's image, but that they are fellow heirs and fellow servants with you. You speak to them in that same way. You deal with them in that same way. There is nothing common about the true Christian from the standpoint of how the world would define common. But then you look at this. You look at the intimacy that he wanted from them. Verse 16. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. He wanted them to greet in the customary cultural way of affection of the time. It was a holy kiss. It was a holy kiss shared between individuals who love Christ. Nothing perverse about this as the Roman Empire tried to make it seem. Nothing sensual about this, but it was full of eternal affection for one another. An expression of affection. And it was in that customary cultural way of that time that they demonstrated that toward one another. Because you can be sure that was not the case in the world around them. For when the world around them demonstrated this act, perhaps it was something sensual, as we'll learn in, uh, as we reach Corinthians. It was something perverse. Or the world ought not do it at all. Just treat each other with this harshness and mercilessness. But there he also, listen to this, he also aimed to bring the church together in the unity of the truth and that they upheld it together. But listen, he wanted them to remain watchful. 
He wanted them to remain watchful. After he says that, he says, now I urge you, brethren. Now here comes the warning. Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching. Contrary to the teaching which you learn and turn away from them and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Jesus Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deserve the hearts of the unsuspecting. You're probably wondering, like, what is that doing there? We know it's there because it's scripture. But its placement is definitely one that certainly provides a lot more to what is said before. It's almost like we're wrapping this letter up and we can come to the very end and have a doxology of praise that lifts up the name of Christ. And then we're done. But Paul says, no, we're not done because all that I just told you is under assault and it's under assault in very particular ways. He essentially told them to flee from those who place stumbling blocks among them, run from those people, those who aim to destroy and poison the love they had for one another in Christ in the bond of fellowship in Jesus. You have people today who are confessing to be Christians who hate each other. And you want to know why? They never turned away from people who brought the false teaching. They never turned away from it. They entertain it and then they turn on each other when they actually are supposed to be in fellowship with one another. You see it happening all the time. They hate each other because they haven't turned from those who bring division. They haven't turned from those who are bringing error. So they look like the people on the outside They look like on their outside what the people look like on the inside who bring the false teaching. Because those people are antagonistic toward Christ and hateful of of all that bears God's imprint and hateful of God himself. And so they turn their people loose and the people act the same way. Those who cause dissensions and hindrances, he said, dissensions are divisions that cut to the core of those who are in Christ. They're divisions. They're introduced to bring a dividing line where there is unity. To bring a dividing line where there is unity. And by that I don't mean teaching versus teaching. I mean false teaching versus sound teaching. The false teaching is bringing a dividing line where there is unity and sound teaching. Paul wrote, don't even give them a hearing. Don't even give them a hearing. And then he says hindrances. Hindrances are traps that are sent to bring people away from the gospel of Jesus Christ and all the teachings of Christ designed to bring people into slavery, to error and sin. They're traps that are set. He said these came contrary to the teaching which you learned. So you have the teaching to measure what's happening around you. And so he's saying that these These stumbling blocks and these traps are going to come to take that away from you, to corrupt. All the reminders here in Romans as a whole and the Bible as a whole designed to strengthen and sanctify the Christian. That's what they're supposed to do. That's what they're supposed to do. All the things we learned so far, it's supposed to strengthen you and it's supposed to sanctify you, cleanse you. 
Yet there are those whose aim is to tear all of it down. That's what they do. It's who they are. I don't care what they have in their name as they fellowship. If they are not adhering to the teachings of Jesus Christ to bring about unity in the faith among believers and you see it expressed among them, they're not there for that reason. Run from them. That's what Paul says. Run from them because their goal is to tear it all down. You know what it comes down to again? The teaching. That's it. The teaching. It's why everything is distracted away from the teaching. It's the teaching. And listen, that's how they come. They come to you in teaching. So the teaching is the main point on both sides of the equation. The false teacher is coming to teach to tear it all down. The true teacher is coming to bring it all together. But it's the teaching. This hour, people will walk out of places that teach falsely and wonder why they can't stand one another. Their lives are in shambles. They wonder why they can't hold anything together of substance related to the practical matters concerning God's word. It's because the teaching that you're under isn't designed to bring it together. It's designed to tear it all down. It's designed to tear you down. And you just sit there and let it happen. You let it happen. And people have many reasons why they let it happen. But that's how they come. And so Paul says, I warn you about them. They don't look like you here in Romans 16. So I'm warning you, stay away from them. They come with teaching that is false meant to distract, ensnare, and destroy Paul doesn't say, look at their outward appearance and embrace them. Paul doesn't say, look at their credentials and embrace them. Paul doesn't say, as long as they have credentials, they're okay. Paul says, turn away from them if they teach falsely, if they introduce hindrances. He says, turn away from them. Don't long to go back to them. That's Hebrews, right? Hebrews warns, don't go back to the synagogue that treated you as such. Don't go back to the synagogue of Satan. Revelation. They come with this teaching. And Paul says who they really are. And listen, I'll be honest with you. They still exist. They're still out here. They're still here. They haven't left. True Christian compassion is still here. True love for sound doctrine and teaching is still here. But so are those whose aim is to cause dissensions and hindrances against it. They're all still here. We're still in the church age. They haven't left. Paul says how they come. Verse 18, they come with words of smooth and flattering speech. The people love the way they put things. Never mind the what they're saying if it connects to the word of God. They just love the way they speak. They love their appearance. Because after all, first impressions are everything. So we're told in the worldly sense. But they're not listening to what is coming out of the people's mouth. Does what that man say, does it agree with the scripture? Is he agreeing with the text? Can I follow what he's saying and tie it exactly to the context of God's word and scripture? That is the only estimation I want to make. 
Paul says they come with smooth and flattering speech. They do that because they don't know God's word. That's their method. They don't come with outright wickedness and harsh words. In fact, they accuse true prophets of that in the Old Testament. They accuse true believers of that in the New Testament. They come with flattery. They're eloquent. They are masters at keeping up appearances with the motive in their hearts to destroy the essence of Christian fellowship and contradict the teachings of Christ. I'm going to say that again. They are masters at keeping up appearances. That's what a hypocrite is. With the motive to destroy the essence of Christian fellowship and to contradict the teachings of Christ. They are slaves. That's what Paul calls them. They are slaves. Some of them claim to be slaves of Christ, but really they are slaves of their own appetites. They're slaves of their own appetites. They devour one another. They devour you. And your only use for them is to help them grow their lust and to feed their own wicked appetites. That's the only use. It is why Paul says, I'm warning you about them. Because all that he just said, that found a fondness in our own hearts about them, it really does. When you look at these, this, these pieces of the, of the ancient church that is now the established church, you have a fondness and then you have this warning that there's always an encroachment of false people, false teaching. Now, I'm not talking about false teaching in the generic sense. I'm talking about those who are keeping up appearances. That's the distinction. And sadly, they are effective. They are effective. It's why Paul has the warning here. They're effective. Because he says by their smooth and flattering speech, what? They deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. People who sit there and don't know. People who sit there and don't have a way to measure them. They don't measure them by the word. They measure them based on how they look. Based on how the kids feel. Based on how the family feels. Am I being entertained? Do I have warm feelings when this person is speaking? Does everybody smile when this person is speaking? Are we all having a good time? That is how people are measured. And if you measure that way, you are gone. Rather, I'm sitting in a place. Is this individual, is he upholding the truth concerning God's word? Is he about what God has said? And is he telling me to apply it in the same manner that God would have me apply it? They are effective. They deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. Those who would not suspect as long as one claims to speak for Christ. As long as one claims to speak for Christ. And can plaster Christ and all the phrases that go with it around themselves. They would never suspect that such a one would actually seek to destroy the teachings of Christ. And the fellowship of the saints. But they are here. They're here in the letter to the Romans. They're here in the modern age in which we live. They are not sound men. They are not God's men. They are actors. They are pretenders. They are polished to feed themselves and to serve themselves. They are Satan's men. They are Satan's men. They speak as smoothly as he does. 
They are surrounded by those who don't know any better because the standard is not the truth among them. The standard, guess what, is the hindrances and the dissensions. That's the standard. These people are always in conflict with things that have nothing to do with God and his word. They're distracted and they're distracting and they're being distracted by the people to move away from God's word. Get away from the teaching. Get away from it. But Paul calls the saints to wisdom. Look at what he says. For the report of your obedience has reached to all. Oh, you're not you. You have turned away from them. You're not like the people who are being unsuspecting. He says the report of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore, I am rejoicing over you. It is not easy to find believers who are not deceived. In this way, let me say it this way. It is it is not easy to find people who confess to be believers. And yet who are not deceived. It is easy to find believers who are not deceived. But he says the hearts of the unsuspecting, that they're deceived. This isn't them. Paul isn't describing them in verse 19. Because he says, I, I, I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. Being innocent in what is evil doesn't mean you don't know what evil is. It means you know what it is, but you won't partake of it intentionally. But he says, I want you to be wise in what is good. Because if you're wise in what is good, you can stamp out that which is evil. Well, what is good is contained in the scripture. Everything that is good, everything that we need concerning the good that Paul describes is in God's word. He calls the saying he wanted them to continually obey the truth, and they did. Paul says it. They did. For that was the report, and Paul rejoiced in that. He just said, continuing. You're doing it. But and also for them to be wise and discerning. To not participate in the evil. To not participate in the evil. Some people think they're filled with so much good that they can participate in evil. No, if you're participating in evil, you're evil. But Paul is saying, no. Know what is good. Be wise in that way. But be innocent in what is evil. He doesn't say be ignorant in what is evil. He says be innocent. And then he gave them the hope we all have. It's awesome how as he ends this letter and we end our time in Romans. He uses Genesis 3.15 and the promise there to anchor them. In verse 20. For the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That's an amazing statement. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. He says that promise of old. That extends throughout the whole of scripture is going to bring itself to pass in Christ. Christ will bring it to pass. God will bring it to pass. Lastly. Almost lastly, he mentions Timothy. He mentions Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. And so do Lucius and Jason. And so Sipater, my kinsman. Timothy's known to us in the ministry and life of Paul the Apostle. Timothy was with Paul. As were Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater, workers in Christ to accompany Paul at this juncture of his ministry. They were also acquainted with the saints in Rome by virtue of what they heard from Paul. And then you see verse 22. I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. Tertius inserted his own greeting to the saints as he penned this letter 
as dictated to him by Paul the Apostle. So Paul is dictating to Tertius what Paul would say. And Tertius says, I would like to insert my own greeting. The full greetings aren't his because you see them marked off by what is said here. They are Paul's. But here we see by the divine author through the human author that Tertius was enabled to insert his greeting to the saints. So Tertius wants to get in and say, hey, I also I'm writing this letter on behalf of the Apostle Paul. I, I want I want to greet you as well. And in verses 23 and 24, Gaius, host to me and the whole church greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer greets you and Cortus, the brother. Grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. And then he says, now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret for long ages past. We'll get there. He further greeted, he gave further greeting related to Gaius, who served as a host where Paul was, where Paul was, along with the, along with the church there, as they greeted the saints in Rome. So this greeting was related to Gaius, who served as a host where Paul was along with the church there with him. Erastus was among them, known as a city treasurer, along with his brother, Cordus. And again, to the final greeting. It's amazing how we wrap up Romans. Paul goes to the facets of the mystery of godliness to strengthen the saints in Rome as they appear later in the letter uh, to uh, in the, the letter to Timothy. And he wants to encourage the saints overall so as to set their thoughts and their hope toward eternity in Christ. And we end there. But now is manifested by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of the eternal God has been made known to all the nations leading to obedience of faith to the only Wise God, through Jesus Christ, be glory, be the glory forever. Amen. Paul ends by saying the mystery has been revealed. The mystery has been revealed. And he's also saying in this letter, I have kept in step with revealing that mystery to you all. And you have obeyed. With this, we end our time in Romans. I, I pray it's been a blessing to you as it has been and will always be to me. Amen. Let's pray.